0: woo <laughs> here, it just came in the mail. I thought you might be interested in knowing that uh, you can now buy a uh, set of uh, praying hands, salt and pepper set. Uh, you've uh, probably seen the, uh, the uh, sculptor of Duryer. And uh, I, I quote to you from the advertisement, it says, an inspiring reproduction of Duryer's. That's D-U-R-E-R, Duryer's. Immortal masterpiece, a lovely work of art, these praying hands. Every time you sit down for a meal and you uh, sprinkle salt on your tomatoes or sprinkle a little pepper in your pepperoni you will be making a uh, pious gesture and the idea of having praying hands salt and pepper shakers i think <laughs> i mean i mean what uh, do you realize do you realize uh, what uh, what the uh, future generations like a thousand years from now when they have this in the museum you know you've seen these praying hands like so i think it's kind of great that's true slob art. That's slob art. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole category of slob art that could be, could be called uh, pious slob art. I mean, uh, let's say it, piety is the is the uh, is the driving factor in it, and uh, nowhere but in America does this rise to such tremendous heights. So, uh, please, will you, uh, if you will, Art, you're sneaking in there, i Let me know, uh, Salute, uh, tonight, to the basic slob that's down deep within each one of us. The, uh, the, the, the fat, belching slob that sits within the soul of each man, waiting to be left out. You've heard, of course, the old expression that within every fat man, there's a thin man trying to escape. Well, I would say within... Every civilized man, there's a slob sitting around picking his teeth, waiting to be heard too. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you, Al. very nice. And uh, we'd uh, like to salute that side of us, the slobs. And uh, by the way, speaking of, uh, of the pious side of slob art, uh, had, have you uh, ever run into this one? I'll never forget. I used to do a commercial one time in a in a Midwestern television and radio station that had the following commercial, which I thought was kind of Indicative of the whole thing, uh, I became a student of the pious uh, subdivision of slob art at that time. Now, very few people have documented it because it uh, can be kind of dangerous. But uh, this particular commercial came out and said, Friends, you had it says uh, deliver in dialect. It said, uh, Friends, have you ever envied those friends and neighbors of yours who get real help out of reading the Bible, who get actual practical help out of the Bible? Well, the Everlast, Ever-Protecting Bible Corporation of Peoria, Illinois, now makes available to you a Bible with a genuine, bulletproof, knife-proof, leather-covered cover that will just protect you from knife fights, protect you in gunfights, and all them other problems that you run into on Saturday night. Now, this Bible is guaranteed to save you at a moment when you need saving more than any other time. Now, you send your name and address to Savior in care of this... Well, I, I... you know, I kind of, I kind of liked when, I, and you'd be surprised, the number we sold. Then there was another one that came on like this. It says, um, friends, have you have you felt that uh, the true religion is, is leaving American life every day, and more and more people are leaving the church? More and more people are forgetting the nature of the true religious aura and aspect of our basic American life. Well, the Last Supper Tablecloth Company of East, which is kentucky now makes available to your beautiful oil cloth tablecloth in four magic colors that is in life size that you're sitting down every night when you break bread in that simple humble home of yours you're breaking bread with the last supper and the lord is sitting there right beside you you'll see judas looking with his sneaky eyes over towards your praying hand salt and pepper set you'll see saint peter getting ready to to say the good word to the lord and as you sit down with that last supper tablecloth spread out before you, you'll be reminded of the basic Christian heritage that is part of your life. I thought to myself, you know, we used to sell those tablecloths. <laughs> now, you, you think that's, that, uh, you know, that's a kind of a bad thing to talk about. But there are very few people. I, I figured that tonight, since you know, it's the middle of July, there's hardly anybody listening and everybody's off on vacation. We can talk about some of the nitty-gritty stuff. No, 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 no. I, I understand that. You can talk about nitty-gritty type things. You know, like for example, uh, you know, the the, the the slobism that's connected with certain aspects of our life. For example, the other night, and uh, this is something you never hear on uh, on a sports cast. Uh, you know, the sports is getting really big in America, and and in fact, it's getting so big that that sports today is one of the major businesses in America. It's, it's up there with with steel. It's up there with, it is, it really is. I'm not kidding. It's up there with steel. It's up there with automobiles. And eventually, I think sports will be listed on the big board. Uh, you'll be able, you know, there'll be, there'll be shares available in the Jets. You'll be able to buy shares in Chris Schenkel Enterprises. And, uh, you know, uh, Kurt Gowdy is, is far bigger today than any movie star. Do you agree with that? Uh, Kurt Gowdy, oh, no question about it. He is. He really is. So, so this, I'm uh, right, absolutely right. So this is an important thing. Uh, that that uh, has crept up on us, on, like on little cat's feet, without uh, without any without any heralding, without any cheers, it just sort of sneaked up on us. Now, uh, what is what is part of the whole sports scene uh, that, that that gives it its its piquant flavor, that makes it different? that let's say uh, uh, a poetry reading at the YMHA. And by the way, have you noticed that today we confuse sports with games? Very interesting. Have you noticed Bobby Fischer has become a sports figure, <laughs> the chess player? And actually, he's 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 a he, he's a he's a game player, not the same as sports, not at all. It's like it's like confusing checkers with football. Uh, merely because there's competition does not make it a sport. No, no, it's not even the matter of money. No, no, no. A sport is a is a different a, a whole different process than a game. Uh, and particularly when it involves a a game of intellect that's not not a sport <laughs> I'm sorry friend <laughs> well, of course there, there you go you you you're, you're always getting into trouble, Shepard, doing that kind of stuff, so we will not we will not even touch upon the religious aspect of uh of sports today which is of of major importance in our time and uh, I would like to 'd like to go on, on record here tonight though as saying that there's one element of sports uh which Of course, differentiated from a game. And that is the combative element of the actual spectator as opposed to the participant. And that's a big thing. Uh, In fact, it's what makes going to a ball game interesting. Because all around you, sitting up there in the stands, all around you are friends and enemies. You can't tell one from the other. (laughs) They look like ball fans, but they're not. They're partisan. And some of the biggest riots that have occurred in Europe in the past 75 years have occurred as a result of sporting events. You agree with me, Darrell? I mean, like 150 people killed. I'm talking about the big scene. I mean, if there was a riot where 150 people were killed because of, you know, a new law or something in Scotland, that would be fantastic headlines. But they have had... They have had like 100 people killed in the middle of a giant hassle over a football game, you know, a soccer game. Oh, I tell you, they, they wind up burning down a stand. You, you, go to, you go to a place like in Argentina, for example, it's not totally uncommon for them to have to call out the, uh, the fire department, seven, uh, seven regiments of National Guard troops, guys with hoses, rubber cannons, and everything else to clear away the, the, the howling mob after a bad decision in a football game. Now, uh, that is part of sports, right? So tonight, once again, we would like to pay homage to that uh, to that unsung character in the sporting world who makes sports what it is. Please, if you will, a little salute music out. Hooray, hooray, hooray for the U.S.A. Hooray, hooray, as we march ever up upward and onward. Upward and onward, we, he, he, he go. Yeah, hooray. Upward and onward, we, he, go. Oh, hooray, 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 hooray. Bring it up, big there. <laughs> so tonight, we would like to salute those soreheads and those bullbirds everywhere whose slogan is not how you play the game, it's whether you win or not. Now, remember, friends, that is the base... Thank you, thank you, Al. That's the basic philosophy of the bull bird. Hmm. His, his philosophy is not based on, on whether or not the game is interesting to watch or whether it's played well. It's whether you win. That's what counts. The Bluebird is basically a poor sport. And that most of us basically are. Let's face it. <laughs> There's not a guy listening to me tonight who doesn't like to win. Now, I'll tell you, as, as who was it? Some famous uh, coach one time, uh, some manager base says, you show me a good sport and I'll show you a loser. That's what he said. He says, you show me a good sport, I'll show you. Because after all, you're only considered a good sport when you lose the game. I mean, you run out, you leap over the tennis, net and you grab your opponent's hand you know, and you shake it. Congratulations for beating the hell out of me. That was great. You really did it. Well, of course, uh, true winners, uh, they, they, they don't have to do that. And I, I would like to salute tonight, of course, the the boo capital of the world is naturally, by the very nature of the city, is is Philadelphia. There's no question about it, that, uh, that they have achieved eminence in the field which is very tough. This is one of the toughest leagues, because after all, how many major league teams are there? How many major league cities are there? To achieve eminence in the booing field is no small feat, especially when you're competing with such recognized sorehead uh, uh, towns as New York. New York, listen, uh, New York turns out, especially the Bronx, turns out more soreheads. If you don't think so, ask Lindsey. I mean, (laughs) I mean... uh, uh, New York has turned out its quote of, sh- of soreheads, and yet Philadelphia still is preeminent in the field of creative booing. Now, I have a note here. It's a shepherd the other night, he said that you, as a, as a student of, of booing, he said that very few people are, are, give, give credit to this art form, which, of course, is a people form. It's a people art form. It's not yet been uh, codified. It's not yet beneficial. That's why it has such vitality. The one thing about a form of art that is practiced by the people before you know, Clive Barnes is sent to, to uh, write a critique on it is that it has a basic animal vitality. It's just like <laughs> they, they claim that when the early Indians in America played lacrosse, it had such a basic vitality that like 40 or 50 guys would get killed in any given game. And now, I agree that the New York Times did not cover it. Leonard Kompat did not write a book on it at home with your favorite lacrosse player as told to Leonard Comfort? None at all. They just went out there and wailed the hell out of each other. See, and let the chips fall where they man, let the bones crack where they will. Oh, there were more busted skulls after any given lacrosse game, and they limped around. As a matter of fact, whole wars, did you know the whole wars were precipitated between Indian tribes because of a nasty moment in the lacrosse game that caused lifelong enemies and lifelong battles to develop between various tribes. And so it is. In Philadelphia that the Philadelphian does not boo out of the fact that his team has performed badly. He boos because he boos. It's as simple as that. Does the cow move because uh, the, the, the grass is not well today or, or the water is tasting? No, the cow moves because it is a cow. And a Philadelphia fan boos because he is a Philadelphia fan. No other reason. And that's his accepted mode of behavior at the ball game. By the way, uh, I, I wish booing would, would get into other uh, other facets of, of public life. Uh, for example, if... That if so <laughs> brings up some fantastic ideas. Can you imagine, you know, you're sitting in this Broadway theater. Say, Nobody actually boos in a Broadway theater. They may be sitting there, 2,000 people in a Broadway house, and the show is boring, miserable, you know. Just once, I would like to hear the audience, boo, 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 yeah, boo, they start throwing stuff up that Lawrence Olivier, boo, boo, you boom Never. Never. You see, that's because drama as we know it today no longer is viable. It no longer is associated with the people. It has lost its animal vitality. It's dead on its butt, in effect. Which reminds me, this is WOR New York, and uh, we have... uh, a couple of commercials here. Let's see. Do you have a little ding-dong in there, it? Hit it out. When you are 18 years old, the world is full of empty promises. Jobs that don't exist, deals that fall on our faces. But the emptiest promise of them all is the one that goes, stick with me, kid, I'm going to make something out of you. The truth is, nobody's going to make anything out of you. Your life is on your shoulders. And if you're looking for an easy one, don't try the Marines. We don't take life easy. We don't take the world for granted. And we don't take every 18-year-old that comes along. First, you have to volunteer. Then you have to get through Marine boot camp. And Marine boot camp is the toughest nine weeks of a young man's life. Because the Marines are looking for a few good men. And we do a lot of looking before we find them. This is Barry Farber invading your privacy, please. Do you read to get drowsy or do you read to keep alert? If you're the kind of person who uses a book for a sleeping pill, then go on back to sleep. You do not need the Book Find Club. Any book club can keep you adequately supplied. But if reading is vital to you, if it keeps you up on what's going on, if reading stimulates you and makes you more stimulating write down the phone number that I'm going to issue three times because you'll be in touch with the Book Find Club. And this is a different kind of club. Book Find gives you all the club benefits, great savings on regular hardcover publishers' editions, extra bonus books, convenience but listen to the books that make up the Book Find Club. They're not afraid of books on politics, race, religion, sexual liberation. The Book Find Club loves books that ought to be bound in asbestos. As an incentive to join now, Book Find will send you two extraordinary books for just $1 plus postage and handling. These books, typical of the books we offer, retail for about $17, and listen what you get for your $1. Galen, Spy of the Century by E.H. Cookridge, This is the spy story to end all spy stories because it's real, incredibly real. The shocking exploits of Richard Galen, who was a master agent for both Hitler's intelligence service and the CIA. Also, open marriage, a new lifestyle for couples written by Nina and George O'Neill. Is marriage on its way out, or are there going to be new way-out forms of marriage? Read Open Marriage. Fascinating. Call tn 7 1441 and 71441 for a trial membership and get Galen and Open Marriage both for just $1 plus postage and handling. Once a member, you need buy only two more books in a year, always at discounts of up to 30% off publishers' prices plus postage and handling. Call now, TN7-1441, operators on duty around the clock, TN7-1441, or send name and address, no money, to BookFind, Box 2, W-O-R, New York, 10018. BookFind, Box 2, W-O-R, New York, 10018. Okay? Now, you know... Uh, I I, uh, I would like to give you some more information here tonight, since uh, we've we've taken our taken it upon us to record uh, the the history of booing in America is a, a viable. No, I, I'm I'm I I was broken into booing early in my life. My my old man one time did I ever tell you the story of of a fantastic moment that I I was witness to as a kid. My old man was a fantastic Chicago White Sox fan. Now. I don't know whether you know much about the White Sox, but there is a mystique about the White Sox that transcends anything that the Mets have ever known. Because the White Sox have never really won in the memory of man. The, the Mets have won. Let's face it. The Mets won the world title, for heaven's sakes, just a few years ago. And, uh, and they were a, a new ball club. They were, well, they, they were started in, in 1962. They wound up winning the, the world championship in 1969. It's incredible. Well, my old man was born, grew, lived, and died, and the White Sox never once got above third place in his entire life. That's right. He was gone by then. Yeah, that's right. He never saw it. He never saw him win the pennant that year. (laughs) And so, you know, it was nothing nothing but defeat. And so this produces a different kind of fan. Now, he has two attitudes towards life. One, he has an intense to be on the underdog of anything, I mean, habitually, continually, and traditionally, produces an intense loyalty. It, it transcends... Say, for, Have you noticed how the, how the Yankee fans all left the Yankees? Well, because they did not have a tradition of losing. That losing teams produce loyal fans, not winning teams. Now, why is this? Well, it's hard to, hard to say why, except to say that most people are losers in their lives. And that's a fact. And so they can identify with a loser better than they can identify with a winner. Now, they may cheer a winner. They may be excited when winning occurs before their eyes. But ultimately, fierce loyalty is based on a tradition of defeat. I want you to think about that for a minute there. Let that marinate. Let your brain soak that one up. That's a profound statement. Right? Right? Because, you know, we tend to think that winning produces fans, uh uh-uh. Winning produces interest. It produces talk show stuff. It produces columns in The Post. But fanatical fans are based on, on, on losers, constant losing, constant losing. And, and they develop a loyalty to this. And so th- th- there were two elements that worked out at Comiskey Park during my old man's tenure as a fan out there in that big ballpark. Well, one was fierce loyalty for the White Sox. Fierce. And the other, and this is the concomitant result of total losing, an insensate hatred of the other team. Now, the Yankee fans, during the days when the Yankees were winning every pennant in the world, they never hated the other clubs. What's the point of hating the Cleveland Indians when you're a Yankee fan? I mean, <laughs> why why, why should a Yankee fan hate Detroit when the Yankees murdered Detroit? Every time Detroit showed its head above the ground, what would happen? They'd clobber them. So why hate Detroit? A little maybe pity for Detroit. Maybe just uh, possibly uh, uh, no thought at all of Detroit. But not so in Comiskey Park. There was an insensate hatred of winners, which happened to be almost the rest of the total league. As far as the White Sox were concerned, because during the entire lifetime of my old man, somebody in the in the in the league was winning the pennant all the time, but it wasn't the White Sox, and it was usually somebody else. I mean, it was always a different thing. First, it was Cleveland; they win the pennant. You know, they had Feller and all these guys. Then it was uh, you know, then it was Detroit; they win the pennant. All right. See, a white, he was he was he was an American League fan. Then they turned right around. Then you know, Philadelphia wins the pennant. Yeah, they actually did. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Even the St. Louis Browns win the pennant. That's what really bucked them. They had a one-armed outfielder. The Browns win the pennant. They did. You think I'm inventing this thing? They did. They had a one-armed outfielder. They win the pennant. The White Sox, listen, the White Sox, one of the worst things about the White Sox, they were even beaten by their own farm clubs in the exhibition thing. You know, the White Sox play exhibition against Waterloo, lose 12 to 1. God, why didn't they bring Waterloo up? Well, they did the next year. <laughs> Sent the White Sox to Waterloo. Didn't make any difference. Changed the suits on nothing. You know that. So, so the old man. You know, it was. You got to realize then what that insensate hatred produces when you're when you have a tradition of total defeat. Insensate hatred for the opposition. Insensate. And so the old man, one day, I'll just tell this story. This, 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 you know, I might as well tell you, I haven't told you a, a baseball story in a long time, but i never forget this because it actually happened. And I'm sitting out there, and I, I'm, a, I'm an unwilling and an un, almost an unconscious witness. I must have been about, oh, I wasn't over five or six, something like that, the kids. Say. Look, my, my old man, every Sunday, whenever he could, he would take us out to Comiskey Park, and that was a fantastic moment. And I'm sure there are a lot of kids right now. You know, the old man takes them out to Shea Stadium. And, and uh, they, what, what they're going to think about it years from now when they're grown-ups is very difficult for his old man to, for their old man to anticipate. But I can tell you this, it's a, it's a great moment in the kids' existence. So the old man, you know, we all said we're going to go out and watch the... White Sox. And I can always remember the only time the old man would actually take the, you know, he would spend the dough to go out and see the White Sox, although he was fanatical about following them. He didn't have the kind of dough where he could go out and watch them all the time, see? So he would, the only time he would actually go out and watch them was when it was really crucial, like the Yankees were coming to town. The Yankees were beating everybody all the time, see? So thousands of White Sox fans would pour out to watch the White Sox play the Yankees. They were the ultimate winners. Hence, They were hated more than anybody else, <laughs> and of course it's the White Sox with the ultimate losers. Seeing a clash of oppositions like that is very exciting. Now the second place team battling the first place team is not nearly as exciting as the last place team, like 35 games out of first in the middle of May, now, playing <laughs> the first place team. It produces true tension. <laughs> it really does. And so, so we'd go out there, and there'd be fifty-five thousand people out there to to see the White Sox play the Yankees. Well, now the old man, like all White Sox fans, he 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 hated the he hated the Yankees, and it was a love-hate relationship. See, and that's the way with every loser, every guy that's on the bottom of the rung, his his attitude towards the guy at top of the rung is love-hate. One hatred because he ain't there. You know, he's he's personally on the bottom who, the love side comes, he would love to be there. <laughs> so it's, it's a very difficult position to be in. So the old man is sitting out there watching the Yankees, and I, I was, was the first time I ever saw the Yankees, I'll tell you an exact story about it, this is why I became a Yankee fan. It was because I came to be a Yankee fan through the back door, which is different than most of you guys here. In New York, you got to be Yankee fans because they were in the Bronx. You know, that's it. They, they, you know, they're the New York team. Well, I became a Yankee fan because the Yankees represented, like, the avenging wrath that would come out of New York periodically and decimate the White Sox. I mean, literally blast them right off the ball diamond. It was just, it was just unbelievable. <laughs> and, and 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 they were they were so fantastic that it was you couldn't help but. but the you know, go out and watch them. Well, my old man would, you know, he he had had to see the Yankees. And so it seemed like every team that I would see when I was a kid, with me and my brother, the old man, would be the Yankees. Well, so naturally I began to think of the epitome of the opponent. The epitome of the evil opponent was always the Yankees. I don't remember seeing the White Sox play the Browns, really. I don't remember the White Sox playing Boston or, or, you know, playing. It was always the Yankees. And so on this one occasion, which sticks in my mind because it sounds like the story I'm about to tell you, it it, it really formed my whole attitude towards sports. It's hard to to describe what happened, but, you know, why it did it. But this is what happened. I'll just describe the event. So now it it is, the Yankees have come to town. The Yankees are leading the American League. It's hot. It's July. It's the middle of the season. The Yankees are maybe 15 games in the lead now, you know, and they're they're just running, you know, just running. The the Yankees, you know, they had this easy lope that they would they would just run ahead of the rest of the league. They didn't they didn't run, you know. It was the rest of the league that was running. The you know the Yankees just sort of sort of cooled the log up there, you know, geez, unbeatable. And so they came to Chicago on this 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 hot day, and it was a doubleheader. It was Sunday. It was in July. And we went to see the Yankees. And now he'd been talking, the old man had been talking about this for about two weeks. We went out to see the Yankees, you know, they're coming to town. And the, boy, it's going to be fantastic. And, you know, we, we did the whole thing. My mother made a lunch. Uh, everybody, you know, everybody was <laughs> talking for weeks before this thing. And finally, we drove to the park. Now, we lived, we lived about 20 miles or 25 miles away from the park. So when we drove into the park, it was thousands of guys out there parking the cars, you know. oh hey, park over here, you know. You know those guys all around the ballpark, they're parking cars in the vacant lots and stuff. We get to the Oldsmobile parked, and we join that great parade of pilgrims uh, going towards Comiskey Park. Now, I don't think there's anything more exciting than approaching a major league field of any type—football, baseball, this, this edifice—and it's even true in in in, in uh, in basketball, when you're when you're when you when you're a fan and you're approaching the garden, <laughs> oh wow, you know, big sign says you know Knicks versus Celtics tonight. God, that's that's it. You agree with me? It's, there's an excitement in your gut. I, if you're not a, if you're not a sports fan, you will not understand it, and I don't expect you to understand. it. So, for heaven's sake, tune the show out tonight. Get away. This is this is beyond your understanding, lady. So get out of here. We don't need you tonight. Well, I, approaching that park, the old man is getting tense. He's got yeah. And, and the day, you know, the day of the game, he buys the Chicago Daily News, which printed on a big double header. They also always printed a special paper that was distributed just outside the ballpark that had a scorecard in it. They don't do that locally, but they do in Chicago. And they had a scorecard saying it had, it had the, the lineups and all. And the old man's got the, he's got the scorecard in his, in his hand, and he's beginning to sweat. And you can hear it's, it's fantastic because as you come closer to the stands, this enormous cliff is rising up above you. And if you've ever approached Chase Stadium from the right angle, I'm telling you, it's like the Coliseum. It really is. The uh, Yankee Stadium is even more so, that great white walls that rise up above you. And uh, it's an exciting just being outside and joining this crowd, moving towards it. So here I'm a kid. I'm about six, and I'm moving towards it. And there's thousands of people. I mean, just, just you couldn't believe the number of people that are going in this place. Well, we had our tickets already. So the old man, and he'd already gone. To, I got the tickets, you know, about a week before. So we're all set. We got the tickets. Well, the only tickets that you could get that he could get at least for that particular doubleheader was general admission seats. Uh, yep, and we were in the upper deck. Get this, we were in the upper deck in right field. Well, we you know going up the ramps, millions of people, and then, you know they're selling souvenirs, and you can hear and and you get brief. Fleeting glimpses of the field as you go up these ramps. You, know, you, go up, you go up one ramp, and you're going up about 45 ramps to get up to the upper deck in left and right field. So, so, going up ramp after ramp after ramp, past the field box, area pack section 27, 34, and 98, past Loge, and all these different things. Going up these. And every, every couple of seconds, you would get a little fleeting glimpse of the field on it. You'd see the green grass. Once in a while you just see they're out there, it's before the game. Seeing guys are out there in field practice, you'd see this this white suit run past, you know. Oh, wow. And now you hear the crowd. You know, somebody does something. And and finally we arrive in our seat and that first view of the ballpark, for those of you who are not fans of any major sport, I, I must say you you have missed one of the great I, I, how do I express it? One of the great human excitements is to look down on a playing field before the game. It seems pregnant with possibilities. It seems like it's... it's a, well, I, I don't know. There's no, no word, really word to describe it because, first of all, they're generally beautiful. Uh, they, they, the, the sun hitting the grass, hitting the outfield grass and those white lines, those foul lines angling off, and the bases and the and the uh, the home plate, the batter's boxes, and all those beautiful white geometric patterns, the fantastic green—it's just a beautiful sight. And all around it is this enormous cliff of the stadium, filled with probably fifty thousand people looking down on this piece of real estate. It's an exciting scene. <laughs> I mean, really. Well I, I'm I'm too you know, I'm not even a ball fan or anything at that time. I'm about five or six, maybe seven, something like that. And and all I am is being taken to this fantastic event with the old man. Well, where are we sitting? We are sitting about five feet inside the foul line in the upper deck in right field. You got the picture? Now Comiskey Park at that time had, had the long, some of the longest outfield fences in baseball, like 400 feet from the plate, you know. There was no cheap home runs in Comiskey Park. It's been legendary, the White Sox Park. See, they gave up long ago having a slugging ball club. So they, <laughs> they did the reverse of what most other clubs did because they recognized that they, you know, they get murdered by these hard-hitting balls. They moved the fences back. The only way, you see... <laughs> Which is a, quite the reverse of what most other teams did. The White Sox would, re, would move the fences back to thwart the Yankees. They didn't. They didn't move them forward so that their club could get more home runs because there's no home run hitters on the club. I mean, you could have moved the, the fences maybe 30 feet back a second base and they'd have trouble reaching the stands because they hit all nothing but ground balls. <laughs> so anyway, here we are. We're sitting. We're sitting just inside the foul line when the great, traumatic moment is about to begin. Now out comes to take fielding practice. The White Sox took fielding practice first and, and they were through when we came in and sat down in our seats. All three of us are sitting there, me and my kid brother and the old man. The White Sox are now through with fielding practice. We see them going back into the dark and he says, Hey there you he he's pointing out the players and he's saying, there's number seven, she number seven number sixteen, number twelve and uh and, and now coming out of the of the uh of the visiting clubs The visiting clubs uh, uh, are coming out of that, 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 that little slit where they come out of, you know, when they come out of the clubhouse, you see these figures appearing one after the other. They're coming out. And they're coming out from the dugout. And they're coming out just casual, slow, in gray suits. The Yankees. Now, the Yankees, uh, in their traveling uniform... Now, most of you fans only see, you know, the guys that are fans, they only see the their club generally wearing home uniforms. I always picture the Yankees in 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 gray suits. That's the way I picture it. You picture them in white pin, pinstripe, I picture them in gray suits. Because that's the way they always came to Comiskey Park, gray. And they just have little thing, that not say Yankees, just a little thing on the front says New York totally understated, had this this dark blue cap just said N-Y on the front. That's all. And on the back, little numbers. They had small numbers. And so the old man starts to holler. It's before the game, see. And for some reason, more than any other ball player, I guess guess he epitomized to him the hated Yankees was Lou Gehrig. I don't know why. He hated Gehrig. And and he starts to holler, and and one thing the like all good bluebirds, he had fantastic vocal control, tremendous diaphragm, and and, and and motivation was more important than anything else, since he hated the Yankees more than anything else. He you know he was hollering better than he ever hollered in his life, <laughs> and and you know we were sitting way up in the right field, and and because of the of the acoustics of the stand, you know the stand is like a genuine like a like a parabolic reflector. Yeah, you, you take a look at Chase Stadium. This is a fascinating place. You know, the sound is reflected inward. So the old man starts to holler. He hollers, You bum! 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 It's just echoing down. See, and Gehrig, <laughs> I see Garrick down there, and, and Gehrig is just, you know, he just, he just taking infield practice. See, and and it looked like he was right below us because we were in right field, and Gary played played first base. See, so the old man is going, look, look, Gehrig! You boom, you boom. Fantastic. And this king said, I'm looking up at the old man, and he says, oh, that's a great, it's groovy. You know? <laughs> so I'm proud of the old man. And, and he got about five fans all around him. He got them going. You know, booing is, is contagious. It's like, it's like the smallpox or VD or something. It's contagious. And it spreads. And so the old man, boo! Well, the guy about three rows back, he picks it up, boo! Boo! Well, here is a little nest of anti-Garrick fanatics now. There's about 20 of them booing, see, and the old man is leading them. And he's got his hat, see, and he <laughs> he's wearing his hat. He had a baseball hat, see, from that, that came from Fire Chief. I don't know where he got it, but it had Fire Chief on the front, Fire Chief Gaslight, see. So he's waving his, boo, <coughs> boo, hey, Gary! hey, Gary! put it in the hat, come on, put it in the hat, you bump. Well, Gehrig is doing nothing. He's just down there, you know, he's scooping up these ground balls. Well, the first inning begins. And the Yankees come to bat. Well, the first guy up walked. And, of course, the old man is starting to boo already. Well, that was a natural opening for any White Sox versus Yankee games. The first Yankee is on the ba- on bases, see. The second Yankee singles. Now there's two guys on. And so the old man starts to holler, see, because up is coming Lou Gehrig. <laughs> well, Gehrig is a left-handed hitter, see. So Gehrig steps into the bat. He yep, steps into the batter's box, and he's got these real tight stance, and he just wiggles his tremendous shoulders. He wiggles his shoulders. The old man starts, boo, Gary, you boo! boo, boo, well, the first pitch, Gary just went, he just swung the bat, it looked like a, he twitched it, just went, my God, the ball is coming right up in the right field, it is coming right at us, and that ball sailed right over the old man's head, about eight feet fair. And it went about 30, maybe 30, 40 rows back of us. It just went right over our heads, see? And all the bluebirds turned. It went whistling. (laughs) Well, Gehrig cleared the bases. Well, that stopped the old man for about 30 seconds. Now he's really bugged, And he's waiting. Three innings later, Lou Gehrig again appears at the plate this time with runners on second and third. And so the old man stands up in his seat, and he starts hollering, Ooh! Ooh, you bum! Oh, you lucky bum! You lucky bum! Boom! Oh, he grooved one to you, you bum! You can't do it! Boom! He grooved it to you! Whoa! And he's, his neck is purple, sticking out, his eyeballs are bulging. He's hollering that Gehrig that the other guy, the other pitch by now, the first pitcher, he's been gone, you know, for already two innings. He grooved it, see? He grooved it, to, you bum. The first pitch, Garrick just reaches out with that twitch on the back like that. Well, this time, I saw a scene, friends, which <laughs> I saw a scene the like of which I will never, ever again see. One of the best bluebirds who had joined the old man in cheering was sitting right below us. We were sitting... Well, we were sitting one row back of the of, of the of the partition, you know, of the edge of the railing. Well, the guy in front was helping the old man. See, he sees the ball coming up. It's coming right at us. It's the first time I've ever been on the receiving end of a home run. It is coming right at us. And that ball ain't going up. It ain't going down. It's coming like a string. It is coming faster and faster. Well, the guy in front of us, he reaches down to grab the ball. See. It hits his hand. His hand slams up against the iron raining. It goes, boing! You could see his fingers bended back like salamis. He must have busted five fingers. The old man's sitting there, wipes his sheet. He realizes now, Gehrig is aiming right at him. He's bracketing him with two shots. One over the head, three rows back. One, one row of foot. The next one, my God, is going to decapitate him. Well... First time I ever saw a man, my old man, shut up. He was quiet for the next two games. Who out through the whole doubleheader? and said nothing. He'd just write on his scorecard. Every time Gehrig would get up, he'd just look down right down, Gehrig. Very quiet. That day, in case you're curious, Gehrig, big headlines the next day, Gehrig in the doubleheader drove in eleven runs. And I suspect from the way the old man acted for two or three weeks after that that he felt that he was responsible for the defeat of the White Sox. He had goaded Gehrig into a superhuman effort. And Gehrig rose to the occasion. Three home runs, two doubles, a triple, four singles, and he walked nine times. Made 17 fantastic plays at first base annihilated the White Sox single-handedly. It kind of took the wind out of the old man as a bull bird but not for long because after all cleveland was coming in soon with bob feller and he was even more hated
1: bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in virginia turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet MGM app and sign up using code champion 150 then